but uh, my my 76 year old mother, um, we thought she had a little tear in her shoulder and it turns out to be a seven centimeter primary mass and had metastasized everywhere. And so that was the last time I was a trader. Um, left everything, moved in with her. And so we wrote the business plan for trade routes, you know, like I wrote a lot of it, you know, hospital bed and, and all of, you know, bedside and all of that. And, um, you know, it, we, within, I think, five weeks of her getting sick, uh, they had her on like 80 migs of Oxycontin. And I mean, she was, you know, 76 years old, you know, my little Jewish mother, you know, like, like 106 pounds at the time, you know, 4'11", I think was, was her official height. So we decided as a family to take her off the opiates and we, we switched to cannabis. And, you know, it, it didn't save her, but we got her back for, for five weeks. Like, I have a memory. Uh, she's in a rehab center, and um, we, she, I was playing her on, on my, my laptop, playing her Chappelle show, which she had never watched because she never let me get her cable because that was too much money, and why waste money on cable and all that you know, nonsense? So, uh, uh, so we're watching Chappelle show, and she looks on the TV that's behind the the thing, and it's it's probably two in the morning. And there's a blizzard outside, and uh, she sees a, a commercial for. Um, uh, someone dipping a French fry into a milkshake. And she's like, have you ever done that? And it was like, we're about to. And so I <laughs> get out to the all night McDonald's and I have a memory of mom and I high as fuck in a rehab center, dipping dipping French fries into milkshakes. And, and so that memory, uh, you know, I don't know, like, you know, everyone has the Genesis story, right? But like, we got mom back for five weeks. Welcome to Lit Up Founders, a show about the entrepreneurial pioneers of the modern cannabis industry and the organizations they're building. Each episode features the founder themselves, sharing their life's journey that inspired the entrepreneur within to create the most impactful ideas in modern cannabis. You're about to hear the story of two co-founders. One, a social equity applicant from the legacy market, the other, a trader from New York who found the plant through end-of-life care for his mother. From the love of early morning walks, complementary skill sets, and not freaking out on the same day, they have become the first vertically integrated social equity participant in Massachusetts. There is a lot to be said about cannabis social equity programs across the country. Many affected by cannabis prohibition drug laws with criminal records don't have the opportunities to earn the business acumen and financial resources needed to start such an organization in the legal market. This is a story of how this team did it. Things you may learn from today's episode. How not to transport a quarter million dollars in cash. How to choose a business partner. What a Wareham is. How to lose a physical building. How to fundraise. Hint, it's closer than you think. What a freezer war is and how to win it the appropriate answer to the age of an Instagram account of a three-year-old cannabis business. Finally, what a tremendous amount of patience and perseverance looks like. One thing you will not learn, throwing a cigarette butt on Mr. T's lawn is a very bad idea. No one needs to learn that. We all pity that fool, especially Carl. Please enjoy our founder's journey of starting Massachusetts' first vertically integrated social equity participant, Trade Roots, with co-founders Carl Giannone and the captain, Jesse Pitts. So for me, the, the problem in the industry and, and the way I saw it is that this, this was a, a, an industry transition. This was not a new industry. 
Um, there have been a lot of people that have been operating in, in you know, the illicit or, or black market, which I know that they refer to that as legacy market or traditional market today, um, that, that were really the pioneers in, in, in this industry. And the industry already existed. And this was an industry transition. This wasn't the building of a new industry. But when I watched this industry unfold in Massachusetts early on, and that was through the medical, uh, the medical realm, was it was more about who you know, not what you know. And a lot of it was politicians and lawyers and doctors that were really getting these licenses. And to me, that was it was it was it was honestly comical because I felt like they were leaving out the people who shaped this industry to begin with, the people who took the initiative to 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 start and and operate in this industry, even though it was, you know, a a, a law that said that we weren't allowed to do that. And there were there was a group of people that looked at this that this wasn't a a natural law this was just a man made law and you know cannabis is something that is beneficial and can help us and is not nearly as bad as something that we accept in society today called alcohol so to me there was this big issue of why is this illegal one and two why are they leaving out the legacy people from participating in the medical market. And I actually started a, a medical company with a, a, a friend of mine that was a, a college roommate. And he convinced me to start a medical company in Massachusetts, despite my arrest and me serving nine months in jail for selling cannabis. I decided that, yeah, this is, this is something I can get behind. And we, we launched a company out of New Bedford, Mass called the Center for Alternative Life Medicine. And this company was was a small company and raising funds was proved difficult. So we were approached by a lot of different groups and we were approached by a group um, out of Boston that was looking to fund three different dispensaries. We did a uh, kind of a shark tank uh, interview with them and we were selected one out of the, one out of the three companies that they were going to, they were going to support and fund. Well, later on that company decided to do it themselves and after they awarded two licenses, I was slated to be their cultivation director. They fired me that, that very day. So right then and there, I realized, I was like, okay, this is, this, is, this is dirty industry again, just like politics all over again. And when I watched the adult use roll out, my eye was on the regulations saying, okay, are they going to exclude the, the, the legacy players or are they going to include them? And all of a sudden, they roll out the social equity program. And the social equity program was uh, an inclusive way to, to bring those people into the industry and also give them a leg up during their, their application phase. So Trade Roots actually applied after analyzing uh, how much money we needed to raise and, and, and all the logistics behind it. Trade Roots actually applied for all three licenses as a general applicant. And we sort of say got in the back of the line with everybody else and and fought our way to to licensure which you know in massachusetts is 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 a long road and today we we applied recently applied for a uh the second cohort for social equity and got awarded that based on 10 percent ownership not 51 in the beginning it was 51 percent, and the the ccc changed that 
And we looked at the 51% and said, well, you know, we have to raise millions of dollars. And in order to do that, if I'm holding 51% of the, of the company, it's going to deter investors. So we decided just to go to general applicants. Once they lowered it to 10%, we said, well, we might as well go for it. And because of my background as a cannabis criminal, we actually were accepted into the program. And Trade Roots today is the, the first full vertical social equity program having a license in cultivation, license in manufacturing, and a retail license. So that was a, a, a big step for us and, and some serious recognition that, that the state is trying to do the right thing and in and and trying to include uh, criminals that, you know, basically in my eyes had, had a moral compass before anybody else saying that this industry is, is what it is and it's actually beneficial. It's not hurtful to those people that you are, that you are providing to. Wow. So for me, that was what the industry was missing was the, the legitimacy and, and bringing the, the legacy players in, into the market. And, and, and being inclusive. And the fact that we are that first social equity full vertical company shows me that the industry is moving in the right direction. So that, that, was, that was a big hurdle for us and a, and a, and a big acknowledgement for the CCC and, and, and in their, uh, their ability to establish this program and, and to make it effective. Uh, it's not perfect. They're working on it all the time. They're changing things to make it easier and a little more inclusive. And I, my hat's off to them for that. That's, uh, I mean, and my hat's off to you guys because that's a tremendous amount of work to have to do to to really overcome to be, uh, you know, the first vertically integrated social equity program in, in Massachusetts, and and probably you're, you're probably in rarefied air amongst the country as well. So before we get into the business part, like it takes certain people to come into this industry, and I always start with our shows about like asking about the founders themselves. And we have both co-founders, one we'll call the captain today. Um, but you guys can pick whoever wants to go first. But um, I usually ask about your parents and like what your early life and like what that looked like. If you guys want to ping pong back and forth, by all means, you want to take it and run with it and we'll go to the other one. I'll let you guys figure it out. I'll, I'll start off, if you don't mind, Carl. Um, so I, I come from very humble beginnings. You know, my parents were, uh, my father was a carpenter. My mother was a, uh, a nurse assistant. And I, you know, I grew up in very humble beginnings. And it was, cannabis was always there. It was always a part of my life. And it, it became understood to me that it was an underground economy. And that was probably eighth grade that I, I started selling cannabis oh, and wow. this has been ongoing ever since there's been some ups and downs and a, and a hell of a roller coaster ride to get to where I am now. We'll get to those, but, but cannabis has always been there. I mean, I, I always joke with Carl. I mean, you know, most kids played cops and robbers and we played drug dealer cop <laughs> and that's, that's a true story. Um, like in like IRL sense. Yeah. Wow. So, you know, it, it started off with, with a neighborhood that I grew up in. And, you know, just to paint a, a quick picture, we ride the school bus at grade school and a group of us pulled together all of our, all of our lunch money and we bought a bunch of penny candy and we went to school and we sold that penny candy for more than a penny. And we decided that this is a lucrative business for us and we're going to ride our bikes every day to the penny candy store and do the same thing over and over and over again. You got into the penny well, the, candy arbitrage game, didn't you? The, the, school, the school caught on. 
and they decided that they're going to ban selling candy in school. And then they went on to open a school store that sold candy. <laughs> this to me was really my first, first business experience of like, Oh, um, do as I say, not as I do. And that that's really been the cannabis industry in a nutshell for me was, you know, I saw an opportunity at a young age. I started off selling cannabis just really to, to supply my own, my own habit. And I quickly learned that this was a lucrative business and I could actually not only supply my own habit, but I could live off of this. What and resonated with it about you? I don't mean to interrupt you there, but like, what was, what was it that you enjoyed about it? Um, it was, it was providing a service. And to me, there were only so many ways to make money. And cannabis was obviously the, the first choice for me because I enjoyed consuming it. It brought me into a community that I felt welcomed in and that, that I thrived in. And I always said, you know, this is something that I love doing, but it's, it, the clock is ticking and you can only do it for so long because this isn't a real business. And it wasn't until I got older that I started to realize that one day this might actually be a real business. And, you know, I've, I've never really steered from that course. It's always been there. Uh, like I said, I've, I've, I've done time for selling cannabis. And when I got out, I noticed the industry shifting and showing me that this is a viable industry. This is a real business. And I've, I've never wavered from that, that path. So to me, you know, that's, that, that was really my start. It started with Penny Candy mm-hmm. and ended it, you know, owning, <laughs> owning a full vertical cannabis company in Wareham. Was there an entrepreneurial roots in the family? Like, was your parents, uh, you know, your dad, you said your dad was a carpenter as well. So, like, was that there? Like, did they, you know, did they, did they have any idea what was going on? Did they notice the hustle? Like, Jesse shows up with a brand new bike and we didn't get it for him. Where'd that come from? So, entrepreneurial spirit, not so much. I mean, my dad ran his own company, but it was, it was a small construction company. Um, but as far as, you know, Go, going bigger and looking looking at bigger industries and and ways to to really capitalize in marketplaces was very foreign to me and you know i was i was more blue collar that was that was what i grew up in even at college i would come home most kids would go on vacation i'd come home and put floors in so <laughs> that was that was the the experience i got but you know it was it was that that understanding and, and my parents did know, um, and, and they supported me and it wasn't, Oh, oh well, he's a drug dealer. It was sort of, he's doing his own thing. He's, he's paving his own path. And my parents always supported me throughout it, you know, whether they wanted to or not, they, they definitely did. So it was, it was a very interesting growing up with me. Um, and you know, the whole path was, was very real and it was very clear from the beginning of what I want to do. The question was, am I going to be able to do it? Now, I want to get into your story a little bit deeper on this one. So, you know, after you went to university, you, you, I think you were studying astronomy, right? Um, but you had a minor in, uh, was this an externship minor in, in, in cannabis and in horticulture? Or? <laughs> <laughs> that was always a joke with my father was, you, you know, you, you, you went to school for astronomy, but you majored in cannabis and, <laughs> you know, it was not a real minor. Uh, they actually are starting to offer those things today, but back then that was, 
that was not an option back then. Now, were you, I mean, like we can get into little details if you want to share this stuff, but like, were you growing as well or were you more of a, yeah, on the distribution side or like, you know, like what was, what was your end of, what part of the supply chain were you? <laughs> so I, I started off at, you know, when I left for college, I was selling cannabis all throughout high school and I left for college and I decided when I got there, I was going to stop. I'm going to focus on astronomy. I need to study, I need to give it everything I got. And then I got to UMass Amherst and I realized, man, this is like shooting fish in a barrel. Um, I was, you know, scraping by just trying to get by typical college kid eating ramen noodles and, you know, not really being able to go out and enjoy the social life. And I realized that cannabis offered me that opportunity, you know, rather than, op, you know, working at the sub shop that I was working at getting, you know, yelled at by frat guys, this was a little bit better. And I was appreciated more by the people that I was selling stuff to than I was the subs. So to me that it was, it, it was an obvious choice and, I knew at one point that, you know, this is a no brainer. I have to do this. And when I, when I jumped in, I had no idea where it was going to lead me to. It was more same thing, just get a little extra cash, you know, you know, get a little smoke for myself so I can, I can, I can so, so to say self-medicate. And that, that's really where it started. Did I ever expect that it was going to turn into a, a wholesale operation? No, but that's, that's where it led. And so, you know, to answer your question, I was more in, in, in the wholesale aspect of things and not so much in the cultivation uh, until later on. After my arrest, uh, I decided I had to take a step back and I couldn't be so heavily involved. And still, everybody would ask me and everybody would want the same thing. So it came down to, all right, how do I, you know, what, what's my best play here? And, 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 Cultivation on a small scale for craft cultivation was was the answer for me, where we were we were seeing a shift in the market that craft cultivation was holding a higher price point than the stuff that was coming from either California or Canada. So that was a deciding factor for me was like, all right, I'm going to change pace here. I'm going to learn how to cultivate and learn how to cultivate well. And I started doing that. And then my partner that I was working with at the time got into extractions. And that oh, we, really took me down another course. We're going to get into that in a bit. I want to make sure that we, once we transition out of the uh, the, the early history here, we'll get into your entry into into those those other those, those other things as we build all this up. But one thing I do want to focus on is: Do you mind telling us a little bit about? I don't want to fast forward through that arrest and like how that really impacted your early life because this was something that you loved. And this was something that, you know, you, you really resonated with and was a livelihood for you that you really enjoyed. Can you tell us that story? And like, you know, maybe some of the impacts of, of what that has beyond just the, the legal ramifications that were there. Can, you want to paint a picture of that, that night? Sure. Um, you know, to me, I, I was part of a community and it, you know, the joke was always the circle is small at the top. And everybody knew each other. So this is, this is something that it was a community and, and I felt part of it. I felt welcomed and I was, I was highly respected in it because of, of my abilities. And when the arrest happened, all that kind of spiraled and I didn't really know where I was going to land. So throughout that process, it was, it was me just trying to figure out where my place is now. And am I going to be shunned from the community? Am I going to be, you know, 
ostracized and, and, and pushed out because, you know, all of a sudden now I'm, I'm a threat to the community. And that I, I've seen that happen with other people. You were, I mean, you were arrested. Do you want to share the details of this? Sure. Um, so I was arrested in Norton and I was arrested with about 70 pounds of cannabis. About, Mr. Pitts, what, why did you, why did you have 70 pounds if trafficking was 50? As I told Carl before, that was what was left over. <laughs> um, so it was, it was, a, it was a rather large operation and we were selling. That's why you had a, about a quarter million dollars of cash on you as well, right? Correct. Correct. So you had my, you had my first home of cash on you. <laughs> You're on your way to a closing, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> so when all that went down, it was, it was, it was very eye-opening to me and it was like, okay, um, the whole entire time that I was operating, I knew that there was a timeline. There was, there was the clock was ticking, and I knew that I was operating on borrowed time at that point. And I always accepted the ramifications and and what was to come if I got caught. And when I got caught, it was honestly it was no surprise to me. I, yeah. I anticipated it. I knew it was eventually going to come, and I knew what I had to do. And, and what I had to do was the right thing: was to keep my mouth shut one, do my time as a man and, and then move forward with my life. And, and I knew that if I did that, then I could, I could say face and I could say, you know, I never did anything that I didn't agree with. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the whole idea back then was, you know, the rules just play by them. And if you can't play by them, don't play at all. That's fair. So, and, and you were in, you were incarcerated for what, nine months. Is that correct? So I had an 18 month sentence. Mm -hmm. um, I did nine months inside. I earned some good time while I was in there working on a farm, which was fantastic. I mean, talk about a talk about a perfect <laughs> spot to, to 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 cure that curiosity right there. <laughs> what were you growing in that farm? <laughs> um, I was actually building greenhouses and growing um, plants and flowers, and we sold plants and flowers out of the farm. We sold uh, Christmas trees out of the farm, and it was it was a great way just to get out and to, in, you know in nature again and you know walk on the grass instead of concrete. And I came from a construction background and a working background, and to me, you know, there's nothing worse than standing still and being idle. So my days passed a lot faster by working on this farm, and you know, I was I was treated a lot better by the the the, the COs that were on that farm compared to the way you were treated inside. So to me, it was, it was phenomenal. Um, you, it was a great experience. You strike me as the kind of guy who would be like, I can't leave that week. We were almost finished with the grow. We got harvest coming up. I got to make sure it gets out before I leave. Can I, I need one more week here, please. Not that day. I, like you really do strike me as that kind of person that you just wanted to see the job to finish. Um, we're going to deal with, you know, I want to talk about your future after that. Um, and especially with, um, you know, how that really impacted you and your thoughts on cannabis going forward and, and those next steps there rather briefly. And then we're going to cut over to Carl, cause I really want to hear kind of his, his journey and bef before getting into this. So after you got out, like, what was that next, you know, little bit looking like, you know, how did, you know, how did you see your future doing this? If that was even a thing? It, it it really wasn't. And, you know, my, my, my vision of the future completely changed. And I knew that I had a great run 
and I don't regret a goddamn day that I did it. But I, I 100% thought it was over. And when I got out, it was always maybe I'll do something to provide for myself on the side here and there. But it was always construction geared. And I knew that I, I had talents, I had skills that I could use. So I went out and I started my own construction business and I started learning from the ground up. You know, I used to do flooring and framing for flooring, but in the end I was doing frame to finish for, for high-end houses. And I had a good group of, of carpenters that I worked with in, in, in the Wareham area that really helped me do this. And I, you know, I couldn't have done it alone. So this, that was where I saw my future going was in construction and really building a company that, that focused on high-end building, being right at the gateway to Cape Cod, high demand for that. There's, you know, I even know today there's still a high demand for high-end carpenters. So that was where I saw my future going. And it wasn't until my partner, my, my, my roommate from college reached out and was like, I'm starting a medical marijuana company. I need you. And I laughed at him. I was like, no, 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 no. Like that landed me in jail. Uh, I, straight and narrow now, like you want me to build you a facility, I'll build you a facility. And it wasn't until after, you know, about the 10th time that he asked me and, and really sat down with me and explained to me why he needs me involved that, that I really started to look at it as a viable option. And I, I still thought that it was sort of a pipe dream, but if I didn't explore it, I would never know. And that's that. The entrepreneur. I, I, I credit, I credit that friend of mine from college for, for, for where I am today, because I would have never have taken that leap of faith and, and, and just started doing those seminars and, and those educational things to, to, you know, I mean, we sat through city council meeting after city council meeting just to get approvals and zoning and, you know, department of public health. Um, I, I had a, a, a bit of experience going through that, that I could take with me to this, to this realm of the adult use. And then working with that company to work on zoning and work on, you know, I, I felt like I had the blueprint and, mm -hmm. and it would be foolish of me to, just, to crumple it up and throw it in the trash and be like, well, that didn't work because it, it did work. I just wasn't part of it anymore. So but you want to I be knew part that of it. if I could just do that again and do it for us and do it for me, then, then I would be part of it. So it really, it was that, it was that experience, you know, and, uh, a lot of people would, would look at you, look at me and say, "Well, you know, you failed." I'm like, "Yeah, I did. I didn't get a license, but I gained a ton of knowledge, and and I I have a lot of things I can take with me to the next try." And you know, that's the one thing I have to say for anyone enter, entering this industry is that you cannot be afraid to fail. As soon as you're afraid to fail, you've already lost. You know, and I also think it's a different way of like redefining what that failure looks like. You, like your candy arbitrage business was insanely successful, <laughs> you know, until like the man came in and shut you down because they realized it was a good idea. And yep. I, I think you've had a different, you know, different story with, you know, like there's a, a lot of parallels to that story, um, you, you know, with what happened with your licensing and and. and you know, that situation as well to keep driving you, you further with this. So when I, when I heard that story and I knew the, the latter one, I was like, oh, history, you know, maybe not repeats itself, but it definitely rhymes. So we're going to pick up on that part right there in just a bit, but there's another guy sitting here at this table and I want to hear his background story because it takes two to tango for what you guys have been doing here. Um, 
Carl, welcome to the show. Friend, uh, so my, <laughs> my, my story, my Let, story is a Let's little... rewind super deep, though. I want to hear about your parents first. I, I always, I sometimes <sighs> skip over that part, but like, tell us about mom and dad. I uh, grew up in Ridgefield, Connecticut. Um, my father was a stockbroker. My mother was uh, growing up in my, my early days. Uh, she was a, a stay-at-home mom, fortunately. Um, and then I would guess I was a latchkey kid from middle school and high school on. Um, yeah, uh, I wanted. What was your What was your big interest as a kid? Uh, so in the fifth grade, um, my my teacher left the room, and he he left. He was when he left the room, he was happy. When he came back, he was really sad. And I was a precocious kid, and I asked, you know, Doctor Scandera, what happened? And it was the crash of '87. And his wife worked for IBM and he was getting ready. So he was a, a doctor, a PhD, a fifth grade teacher. Uh, uh, our education, our school, our uh, department paid for him to go to Yale and get all of his degrees. And his wife worked for IBM and, and they were getting ready to retire. And the crash of 87 happened. And uh, yeah. And so he sort of handed me a Wall Street journal and was like, this is what this is, and, and then my father. And so I wanted to be a, a, a trader since I was a kid. And What about a devastating, lost-to-everything event makes you like, that's for me. I really want to get into that. <laughs> because my mindset was if it, could be made, if it could be lost, it could be made. Mm. And... Uh, I've I've always and I've, I've said this about me and Jesse, we've always had a slightly irrational sense of, of, of like over self confidence, like throughout this entire thing, like it's just been like yeah, of course we can do this, and and I I mean it, I mean, dude, you take a look, Google a press release of Trade Roots from January 2019. I issued this, and it says we're going to be open for retail sales the summer of 2019. Brian. From the deep down bottom of my heart, I meant that we were going to be able to do that. Uh, you you we did a great up. podcast right during that spring. We're ready to go. <laughs> I remember that one. <laughs> well, we, we opened retail 37 days ago or something. Yeah, right? it, it, so, is, it is now the spring of 2022, just to <laughs> timestamp this. Uh, yeah, potcom crash, global <laughs> pandemic, and all sorts of stuff in between. Um, but but yeah, so yeah, I I I. I wanted, yeah, I wanted to be involved in markets. And, okay. and so I had early internship and, and then I got really lucky. I graduated uh, from, from Lafayette College. I graduated uh, without distinction um, and got a job on Wall Street. As and a kid, were you doing like trading? I mean, obviously your dad as a, as a broker, were you like putting your allowance in like, you know, fractional shares and stuff like that? Was that like a, was that a thing there? Did you have like an imaginary portfolio that you'd be, you'd be running? I, I actually, well, an imaginary portfolio, certainly. Yes. Um, this, I mean, this is before online brokerage and all of that. Of course. Um, so, so uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think I, I had a little bit of AT&T, Philip Morris, uh, yeah, a few of them. Um, but then, yeah, graduating in 99, um, probably outside of now, the best job market ever. Um, and uh, worked for a day trading firm that then became sort of grown up. Uh, prop and algo and and then built my own desk and and really i mean so 
sort of fast forward to 2017, 2018, I mean, up until five years ago, I thought that this was a business and I, I joke sort of tongue in cheek, but a business for criminals and children. Um, you know, like this is something you do to get beer money in whatever you're doing, but then you grow up and you don't do oh, this, like right? selling cannabis on the side, right? Yeah, that's a that's a side thing. It's not you, a main you thing. You did it as a kid, you did it through college, your little little kind of things on that one. Um but yeah, interesting. Well so 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 rather one would do that. One would do I, that. Right. So my first my first cannabis sale. Uh, was federal trafficking, and we got paid via wire, uh, and that was here uh, back in back in July when we opened up wholesale. Congratulations! So, um, <laughs> yeah, so yeah, so 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 really, it wasn't until it was like 20, 2018, A buddy of mine who I used to trade with uh, reached out to me and showed me a business plan for this this grow in Oregon, and I sent over the business plan to to a couple of friends. And really with the instructions, tell me what's wrong with this. So I could tell this gentleman, this didn't, doesn't make sense. And they responded back with, what's the minimum investment? So all of a sudden it was like, well, all right, let me, maybe there's something a little more to this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... I mean, you, you've been on, you, I mean, you were on Wall Street for 18 years. I don't want to skip over this part. Like you were a trader, you, you running your desk, you had hundreds of traders in two different offices that you were working with, like... I think you had quoted once, like you thought you were going to literally die on a trading desk. Like you loved yeah. what you did. Oh, totally. Um, but, but, but I sort of, sort of. Right. So like, I loved, I loved the people I worked with. I mean, I worked with just smart, ambitious, creative, aggressive, like all of like those things. Right. Like loved that. I love that every day was different. I loved all that. I hated living in New York and I, I built a life in New York that was not like I had a, a duplex on the Upper East Side with a private roof that nobody like I was the only person on the block. And I oh, I see how outside. horrible this is. No wonder why <laughs> it was that so, sort of right. But also like right now I wake up and I overlook a cranberry bog and Sola and I can go for a walk in the morning and there's birds. And, and, and so, I mean, I grew up that way. So this is this makes more sense. That I mean, way? there's a thing called Central Park, which I'm sure you could live right on. <laughs> well, no, I wasn't that good. Uh, I was, yeah. I was, I was between first and second. I wasn't between. I mean, you had a nice river right there, <laughs> but I also wasn't between first and York. So let's 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 be honest with with all this. But uh, um, there was yeah, something so, missing, as I think. What I'm trying to have fun and allude to, but there was something missing that was there. Like as great as this life was, as successful as you were, as much as you loved your team and your people, there was something that was missing. And but I, I didn't. Am I putting words in your mouth on that? Yeah, but I didn't know it was missing. I would have been pro- entirely content continuing that life. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was this business opportunity, and at the same time, a, a friend from high school who was a friend of Jesse's. Uh, which is how I knew him. Um, Jesse had been training in extractions and, and uh, th- this other gentleman as well. And, and so we brought them out to Oregon. And the idea was we were going to build a lab out there and get get bigger out there and, and showed up out there. And it, it was not run the way it, it should be. Uh, and so instead of getting bigger, we decided to get smaller. Um, but we were out there for you know a week and I wake up 
you know, crazy early in the morning, and so does Jesse. And so while everybody else was sleeping, we walked around this beautiful 56-acre, gorgeous Oregon farm. And, you know, on like Thursday, Jesse looked at me and he's like, you know, why don't we bring this mountain to Wareham? And I think my exact words were what the blank is a Wareham. Uh, I, I live on the Upper East Side and <laughs> work in finance and, uh, and then, you know, and registered with FINRA and, and all of these things. And, and um, yeah. And so the What's plane landed back. Yeah. I like that. The, uh, the plane landed back from, from, uh, uh, from Oregon and my sister uh, offered to pick me up from the airport. And I, I, did, I thought that was really nice of her and I didn't think it was weird at all, which is strange. And, but uh, my, my 76 year old mother, um, we thought she had a little tear in her shoulder and it turns out to be a seven centimeter primary mass and had metastasized everywhere. And so that was the last time I was a trader, um, left everything, moved in with her. Um, and, um, yeah. And so we wrote the business plan for trade routes, you know, like I wrote a lot of it, you know, hospital bed and, and all of you know bedside and all of that. And, um, you know, it, we, within, I think five weeks of her getting sick, uh, they had around like 80 megs of Oxycontin. Mm-hmm. And I mean, she was, you know, 76 years old, you know, my little Jewish mother, you know, like, like 106 pounds at the time, you know, 4'11", I think was, was her official height. So we decided as a family to take her off the opiates and we we switched to cannabis. And, you know, it, it didn't save her, but we got her back for, for five weeks. Like, I have a memory. Uh, she's in a rehab center. And um, we, she, I was playing her on, on my, my laptop, playing her Chappelle show, which she had never watched because she never let me get her cable because that was too much money and why waste money on cable and all that you know, nonsense. So, uh, uh, so we're watching Chappelle show and she looks on the TV that's behind the, the thing and it's, it's probably two in the morning, there's a blizzard outside. And uh, she sees a, a commercial for um, uh, someone dipping a French fry into a milkshake. And she's like, have you ever done that? And it was like, we're about to. And so I <laughs> get out to the all night McDonald's. And I have a memory of mom and I high as fuck in a rehab center, dipping, dipping French fries into milkshakes. And, and so that memory, uh, you know, I don't know, like, you know, everyone has the Genesis story, right? But like, mm-hmm. like that, like, like we got mom back for five weeks. And you, so, got to, and you got those memories and you got that time. And she wasn't, you know, yeah. like she was there and she was with you and like she was relieved and out of pain, right? Like was this, I mean, I'm imagining that when you were with Jesse at that farm, like he's sharing his vast amounts of knowledge with you and that background that he has with you. And like it almost immediately comes into practice in the, in, in the palliative care with your mom. It, it, in In real time, like... Asking the oncologist, you know, so do you think this is beneficial? And the oncologist being in his, whatever age she was, shaking his head no, as the nurse practitioners and the nurses behind him are shaking their heads in the exact opposite direction, like, don't listen to this gentleman. Like, I saw the difference between, you know, Sativex, Marinol, like the the, the, the pharmaceuticals, and just the, 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 the garbage RSO extracts that we were getting in Connecticut at the time, but still there was the difference. And it was like, okay, you know, this is, I, up until this point and, and, you know, small L libertarian, um, you know, freedom. I, I don't understand how you can commit a crime against yourself. 
you know, like, like just all like the war on drugs, like, come on, like just all of that nonsense. Right. But I really thought from the medical side, I thought medical marijuana was people who are sick, who also want to be high because being sick and high is better than being sick and not being high. And that's what I thought this was. And then obviously. Very, totally very wrong. simple math there, but it, 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 it expanded from there. And like you had, I mean, through a very personal and touching story and and thanks for sharing that. Um, But like you had theory and practice very quickly, you know, in, in, in your lesson of, of cannabis Um, and to see it firsthand. I mean, I'm assuming as like, you're literally seeing this happening and you guys are starting to like, we have to do this. Um, That's a very interesting spark story or, you know, for, for where this started coming about. Um, and a very personal one too. Um, you know, where did it go from there? Like as, as you guys are together now, you got Jesse's wonderful externship um, and, 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 uh, and, and great history there. And you have your financial knowledge and now, now personal mission on this as well. You know, like that was kind of a spark moment for we should do this in Wareham once you figured out what a Wareham was. Um, how did that start coming together? Like, when was that decision moment of like, we should do this to we're doing this. So, yeah, I mean, really, you know, my background and Carl's background, the way I looked at this was, uh, I, I have industry background, so to say. And the one piece of the puzzle that I'm missing is, is that financial background, which was what Carl brought to the table. And to me, when I, when I met Carl at that mountain in Oregon, which is really, we had met each other before then, but I really got to know Carl at that mountain in Oregon. And when I, when I got to know him, I knew right away, I was like, this is, this is my partner. Um, this is who I want to do this with. I don't know why, but it was just those two pieces of the puzzle kind of came together. And, and I knew that raising millions of dollars was not my forte. And talking to investors is not my forte. And just, just that, that, that realm in general was not my forte. And I, I knew what I was talking about, but I also knew what I wasn't able to talk about. And that's really what Carl brought to the table and, and, and makes this, this partnership very, very fruitful, is that we, we have different things to offer. And you know, we, we respect each other's thoughts and, 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 and thought patterns. And when it comes to markets and it comes to marketplaces, I always look to Carl. And you know, I have I have my own understanding of where this market's going. But when it comes to a big market and it comes to understanding a big picture and, and being able to see through those trees, it's 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 vital to have a, a second set of eyes that's looking at it from a different direction. So you know, I I understand where the what the cannabis industry wants and where it's going. But when it comes to the financials and it comes to raising funds and the logistics behind that aspect of it, I, I was completely f- clueless, to be honest with you. And this, is, this has been an un- unbelievable experience for me, raising funds, going through this process, you know, where my teachers went from uh, astronomy and physics to accounting and, and, and lawyers. And, and, and that, that, it, was, it was amazing to me because this is all the stuff I didn't go to school for, but now I'm being thrown into it. I'm being forced to learn it in the real time and, and to understand it and comprehend it to the point where 
I have to execute and, and, and to move forward. So to have a partner like Carl to, to be able to fall back on and be like, what do you think? Yeah. And, and we do this to each other all the time. Like, all right, I know what I think. What do you think? And we, we just bounce the idea back and forth and somewhere in the middle lies the truth. So we, we've been very fortunate to, to be able to look at it in different lenses. So uh, that's, I mean, it's important. Like they always say, hire your weaknesses, but you're also like, you're partnering with what your weaknesses are as well. Uh, yes. Or partnering with what your, your you know, where, where that area that you need is there. Um, so the original team is forming. It's the two of you guys. Like, what is that? When does that decision happen to like, we're doing this, this is what this is going to look like. And how, what does that initial vision look like um, uh, b- between the two of you guys for, tra- was it called trade routes to begin with? No, it was it was basically what is a wareham. That's where we left it, and, and where where are we going with this? We have no idea. I mean, ironic, um, and, it's a gateway. Just, like it uh, is, it, yeah, we thought about gateway cannabis. We're gonna, that's we're gonna, a bad name, <laughs> dude. You're getting at a dispensary. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it, you know, it, it came down to the process of like, all right, what does this look like? You know, what what is our goal here? What is our mission? And you know, the mission statement was very clear to me, but not on the broad sense and you know craft cannabis was the mission statement but how are we going to roll this out what is this going to look like how are we going to approach this industry and for me it was always full vertical um i i had been through that process as i talked about that blueprint um and 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 i knew what that was and i knew what these big huge companies were looking at and they were looking at full vertical Full vertical was was instrumental in in their business plan, and I didn't know why so much at the time. I just knew that I had to do that, and it took some convincing with Carl that this is the path that we have to go. Did he we start explaining how many millions and millions and millions of dollars <laughs> this was going to be? <laughs> so that no, Brian, that wasn't even the issue. Like Jesse's like Jesse's like, dude, we have to be fully vertically integrated, and I'm like. Come on, man. Take a look at the biggest companies right now in America. None of them are vertically integrated. Apple, Facebook. No, 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 no. I'm going down the list. It's like, all right, well, hold on. Wait, maybe. <laughs> maybe, maybe there's a little bit something. And I'm glad I for not for those reasons, but I'm entirely glad that he convinced me that I was wrong. Um <laughs> Jesse, I will publicly say I I said it on NBC News uh, that'll be aired on 420 at 8 p.m. Uh, on NBC and Hulu and Peacock. Uh, but Jesse, you were right. I was wrong. You are Thank smart. You, I am you, you dumb. came you to are... the right decision together is, is how is, is the uh, is the equitable play on that one. Um, so as you guys are going through this, like you're standing these things up and you're like, okay, well, if we're going to grow, I guess we need a greenhouse. Is that what that looks like first? So a greenhouse, I guess, would be a, a building and, and there's sort of a, you know, you want to talk about challenges. So one of the things with cannabis in Massachusetts, um, you need a building in your possession in order to get uh, what they call the host community agreement, which is like a political piece before you could even apply for the license with the state. Uh, and buildings do... Yes, Brian? D- define possession. Uh, so either own or have a lease in place. Uh, so yeah, yeah. Okay. So, um, so Jesse and me, uh, Jesse has experience growing and wholesaling cannabis, but really not, not a lot of, you know, W2s to show for it. Um, <laughs> and me who has no experience in 
really any of this. I, I you know, I've experienced managing risk, sort of. Um, yeah, now we need to get possession of a building that's also, by the way, properly zoned for growing, manufacturing, and retailing cannabis. Uh, so the initial part of the process was actually getting the right zoning. So Jesse reached out to the town and really asked the town, where, where do you want us? Um, you know, there was an, ex there was an extant um, multi-state operator that had a medical facility in town. Um, and then there were two more because they, they tie the number of retail licenses to the number of liquor licenses based on, without getting too, too deep into the weeds. Um, but so there were two licenses available for retail sales. And um, so we got this area zoned and actually the original building that we, that I wrote the business plan for, that we started writing the business plan for, uh, got sold out from underneath us. And uh, Jesse called me up. He's like, I got good news and bad news. I'm like, what's the bad news? He's like, we lost the building. I'm like, what's the good news? He's like, it's becoming a brewery or a malt roaster with a tap room. And it was like, all right. I mean, I mean, you, you can find silver linings and everything, I guess. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so Jesse likes roasted malt. Okay. Help yourself. <laughs> I like craft. <laughs> um, and so, so yeah, so we, we, when that door closed, another one opened and we needed to, we, we found a, a building and it has great frontage from, from the highway. And so, and we found an investor and it was a friend of mine and a person I knew from New York and he was going to sign the letter of intent for the building. And at this point, mom had, you know, had deteriorated and actually the, we got down to the day that we needed to, to, to sign for the building and mom had slipped into a coma and it was the last, the night before was the last time that we, we spent any time with her. And, uh, and then that morning, this gentleman disappeared like, like text messages, phone calls, straight to voicemail, uh, instant message because he's a traitor. Uh, that went straight to nothing, like everything, just everything straight to nothing. Vanished like a ghost. And, wow. Yep. And I'm now, so now mom's gone. I have let down Jesse. This is the second time, right? Second dream. I've destroyed that. I have let everyone down. And so I now reach out. And, and the problem is I can't even reach out to a lot of my friends from the cannabis industry because especially back then, you can't, if you're a FINRA registered, you can't be involved in any of this nonsense. Like, you know, like there's, there's a lot more, this isn't just, you know, put yourself back in 2017, 2018. This it's not quite as ubiquitous as it is now. Right. So especially, I, I being, especially now, being FINRA registered, like you're like, there's, there's some areas that you really can't touch and it would affect the rest of your livelihood. Outside business activity. I mean, you know, who, who, whatever it is, you know, and, and Massachusetts, I mean, you know, you want to see Trade Route's business plan, just go to the Massachusetts website. You'll see the, the CCC website. They publish everything. So, mm -hmm. you know, yes, this was this was a concern. So, um, yeah, we found... You, so basically, you had one of the worst days ever. The morning was pretty bad. Um, yes. And then uh, we found somebody who had a whole bunch of money in this stuff called Bitcoin and Ethereum. And they were just and, walking down the street. They just, you they were just like... Had a Bitcoin a, a hat friend. on. A, a, a friend, and she was willing to to to, to pledge them to show them because you had to show proof of funds plus sign a letter of intent, right? So, 
the, the owner of the building, 85 years old, was like, I want to see money in the Chase Manhattan bank account, not uh, some, what some is this, whatever What is this, this Bitcoin? This nonsense. <laughs> yeah. Right? So, yeah. So, none of that. So, like, I was ready. Like, with Jesse, it was like, I let you guys down. And a friend of mine called me. And she's like, you know, Carl, you sound worse than usual. <laughs> and, you know, so I explained to her, you know, what was going on. And she's like, uh, she's like, well, you know, it's a, you know, non-binding letter of intent. So if I change my mind, it's fine. Right. I said, yes. And she's like, so it could be cash or negotiable securities as well. You know, so-and-so I'm like negotiable you know, I know securities. Do, and I'm like, I'm like, I know you do well, but you know, like you do well, but you know, this is like $1.4 million. And she's like, well, and now this is five years ago, pre-split. Uh, she's like, does 22,000 shares of Apple count? She had gotten some Apple stock at her bat mitzvah, uh, <laughs> however many years ago. She's my age. Never sold it. Um, and so she pledged that stock to buy the building, and then another investor came in. And But, I mean, we almost lost everything. And if it wow. weren't for that, I mean, that's... But, I you mean, had- it's even... You've had some Hail Marys there, but like, that's a network that you guys have built over time. Like you've been building those networks and those connections your entire life. That's true. Mm-hmm. It's also kind of insane that you need to have possession of a $1.4 million building in order to even apply to get the local piece before you could even apply to get a provisional license before you could even apply to get a final license before you could even commence operations. Which is, I'm glad that you said that because that is the point is that that is an insurmountable hurdle to most people that aren't funded by corporations. Yeah. I am very, I'm, I'm really proud. I mean, like, you know, you, I, I will say this and I've said this, Repeatedly, we have the best cap table in cannabis. Um, well, that's actually one thing I wanted to bring up because you've mentioned this before is, you know, for as all the Wall Street roots and big money and things, your cap table is very local. Like you, you're hyper. We, we joke our big out-of-state investor lives in Southern New Hampshire. Um, yeah, like we have, we have venture capitalists. We have, we have, we have names on our cap table that, people in the industry might know, but as direct investors, um, yeah, it's, and we have a helpful cap table. Like it's, we have a cap table of non-vultures. We have a cap table of people that are, of, 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 of cheerleaders that are resourceful and helpful. And I mean, you know, we have weekly board meetings, weekly, Weekly. (laughs) Um, most weeks. Um, And, you know, it's, it's, it's wonderful. It's it's wonderful to have investors who are also mentors. Um, well, let's talk yeah. about let's talk about fundraising. Let's talk about that. So as you're sure. as you're getting that hyper local thing, like fundraising is a challenge for every business, um, especially challenging one here for cannabis. So like, it took you one point four million dollars of bar mitzvah Apple stock to secure your building to even then begin to apply for the process of doing all this. Yep. How are you bringing a bond? How are you reaching out to, to fundraisers there? Like being like, Hey guys, I got this idea for a cannabis business. Like what is your, what is, what's your opener on that one? So the, not the first person we pitched, the first person we pitched was, was a nightmare. Uh, and he, he, he graciously said no. Um, but, um, 
actually the our first investor is uh my now and for the last three plus years uh girlfriend oh um yeah we met she invested then we started dating um and she moved sold her apartment in manhattan left her job as a michelin trained chef and moved with her drug dealer boyfriend to uh a tiny little town in massachusetts her family and friends were horrified uh now they're they've been proud of us all along coming to amazon (laughs) a new show coming to amazon prime this fall (laughs) um but yeah that's uh that that's that story but um yeah i've we've we've been super lucky i mean we've gotten hundreds of no's Mm -hmm. um truly Hundreds. Are you like sponsoring like meet and greets? Are you just reaching out to investors cold? Like, how are these connections happening? Like, I think that's really what other entrepreneurs who are listening to the show can be from. Is it just like you're just vibrating with great energy and serendipity, and like the universe is, you know, uh, responding to those that vibration of abundance and and calling your door? Like, or like, what is going on here? Reaching out to everybody we knew and asking everybody we knew to reach out to everybody. We this is not. Uh, if our general counsel Ilya, is listening, this is we were never making uh, general uh, security solicitations. We were just looking for introductions uh, without compensation. Blah blah blah. Um, yeah, it was it was everything. I mean, it was truly. You know, Jesse, what's your what's your saying about you didn't know that they were one step away? What's the? Yeah, I mean, uh, a, a good amount of these these investors were were one hand away from me, and I had no idea. And you know, I I talk to Carlos, like, dude, I have, there's no way I'm going to raise this money. And I don't know anyone that, that is going to help us. And that was completely wrong. I had no idea that there was, there was all this money that was around me that was interested in this space without asking. And, you know, I, I didn't have the confidence without Carl to, 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 to approach these, these conversations. But once we did, the doors and in, in the floodgates just started opening and, and it didn't happen all at once. Um, it was like Carl said, I mean, more, more no's than yeses. And sometimes there were yeses that we had to say no to. And that was the hardest part for us is somebody's willing to give us money that we desperately need, but this is not our right partner. And that, that is a key aspect to raising funds is you have to say no sometimes to the guy that says yes. And that Can was, you expand that upon that? Because I think that's a valuable lesson, the abundance of riches, but learning how to say no when you need something. Sure. Like, what were some um, of those things that were like, mm, yeah, nope. It, it, it came down to, you know, it was, you, you can read a lot of people and you can gauge on what, the, what they saw in your business. And if they saw that the failure of your business is their success, that's not somebody I want to partner with because I don't want to fail. I want to succeed. But there were a lot of those vulture capitalists out there saying, I'm going to give you this money, but you're going to sign right here saying that if you mess up, I own your license. And to me, I'm just like, yeah, that's not going to fly with me. And we've had several of those conversations and a lot of them didn't get past the, the, the first half hour of that conversation before I was like, Carl was like, Jesse, I'm going to pick you up from this table and get you out of here before you lose your mind. Because one time, one time specifically, where I actually picked him up from a table before he lost his mind, and it was at Nikan 2019. I yeah, probably 11 p.m. 
was a, it was a, it was a gentleman Sh- in a Sharon cowboy Bob. hat that that, that was I'm, telling I'm, me to take my life. A secret to your success that you had quoted is you guys never lost your minds on the same day. You never got crazy on the same day. <laughs> it, it truly, it's. I mean, Jesse, what three, four big arguments in three, four years? Yeah, and they usually they're short lived and you know, it's just, it's more about getting it off our chest and, and, and understanding each other's stance than it is a true argument. So to say, it's sort of like, I'm going to give you my piece. You give me yours. And we're we're going to walk away it, for a little back. bit and we'll come yeah, back together. We'll, digest it, we'll come back tomorrow and we're good. Uh, <laughs> I heard you out. You heard me out. Let's, let's move forward. But there's never been any, any moment for me that it's just like, Oh shit, this isn't going to work with this guy. And it's, 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 it's a give take, obviously. I mean, this is, it's a partnership, so you can't always be right. You can't always have the best ideas. And sometimes we joke about whose idea was the good one, but <laughs> yeah, Jesse <laughs> like jokes like the show flower room window. <laughs> yeah. Like it's my idea. And then, you know, Jesse <laughs> says it's his, which is cool. I mean, it's what he does. As a CEO, you know, that's fine. Whatever. He's the captain. Got a salute. <laughs> Well played, sir. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so that's cool. So you've prevented, uh, our, you know, fistfights with Vulture Capitals. You have saved each other from this. You realize that, like, there is abundance around you, and you just have to reach out and ask for it um, with, with the fundraising element. Uh, I want to go back to the operations of the business. So, like, after this Apple stock is pledged, you guys start your cultivation. Jesse's doing his trade, doing his thing. You guys start your manufacturing right there. Like, there's a lot of permitting and processes that come into this. And a little teaser before you gave me before the show is something to do with the fire department and freezer wars, which I'm assuming have to do with cold refrigeration. I do not know, though. So can you please share this story with us? Would love to. Um, so throughout the process, it, it, it has been. It's, it's a lot of inspections. It's a lot of approvals. And one, one big one that we're waiting for and one big hurrah was that certificate of occupancy. And once we have that certificate of occupancy, we can, we can be in the offices. We can actually start working in our building that we've worked so hard to build. And the day that we were given our certificate of occupancy, we were asking for the actual certificate. And the town calls us and was like, well, yeah, uh, about that. We actually are not comfortable. And I was like, what do you mean you're not comfortable? You already issued the certificate of occupancy. And it came down to the fire department not being completely comfortable with our extraction lab. So I said, okay, you know, let me, why don't you come back down and I'll walk you through the facility again and we can go over this again. They're like, no, we've already done that. We want you to get a third party inspection and we want an engineer sign off that, that it's safe. Nothing's going to blow up. And I was like, well, First, they asked me, they said, well, well who, who signs off on this? I said, well, you do. You're the fire department. You know? <laughs> and they, they looked at me like, well, we don't really know what we're looking at here. We don't understand this. Being very intricate extraction facility, they're not used to seeing this. It, this so reminds me of myself, that scene from Ghostbusters when they go into the basement and they're like, it was you very know, similar. just want to turn off the <laughs> containment unit. And you're like, that would be really bad. You can't do that. <laughs> Can you define bad for me? <laughs> so we had the point where the local fire department had the fire marshal come through, do a walkthrough inspection. And the fire marshal took one step in my lab. He looked around 
he looked me in the eyes and he just started laughing. And he goes, where the hell am I? The space station? And That's I was like, this, good. Isn't, this isn't going to go well. <laughs> <laughs> this guy clearly doesn't know what he's looking at. He doesn't know what a C1D1 extraction booth is or, or what entails to, to go into it. So it, it, it became a bit of a, of a, of a dogfight for us where we went back and forth to the fire department and they wanted an engineer to sign off on it. And this all came down to liability, to be honest with you, on who's liable if something goes wrong. So the biggest pushback was, and, and we referred what to What kind of extraction wars. are you guys using? So we're using ethanol extraction. We're using hydrocarbon extraction. So there's two sides of our lab. The hydrocarbon, I get it. That could be dangerous. Ethanol, not so much. But their problem with, with us was our storage of our ethanol, not of our hydrocarbon. So what's the containment unit, wasn't it? So it was because we were storing our, our, our ethanol in kegs with pressure, with pressure release valves in our walk-in freezer inside flammable cabinets. And the walk-in freezer was minus 20 degrees Celsius, which is below the flash point of ethanol. So their whole point was, well, based on the NFPA codes, you need to have a C1D2 walk-in freezer. I said, well, no, because I have them in a flammable cabinet that is rated for a non-C1D2 location. And they said, well, what happens if vapors get into that freezer? You have ignition points in that freezer. I said, well, great point. But at minus 20 degrees Celsius, ethanol vapors do not exist. So here we go with this tit for tat of who's right. And Are you standing in the negative 20 degree freezer while you're having this conversation? Right outside it. Okay. Much. <laughs> I'm like, that's a great way to cool <laughs> the <you>. argument down. <laughs> so well, if you end, want to get out of this had... freezer, I think we need some, some signatures here. <laughs> so in the end, they made us get an engineer. We had an engineer who basically wrote the fire code in Massachusetts, you know, the state fire code, um, help us with this, with this argument. And I walked him through the whole process. I'm like, tell me if I'm wrong. Let's use scientific logic here. You know, like, am I wrong or am I right? It's like, no, you're 100% right. This code was written for the wrong reason. And now it applies to you. You can get a variance. This, that, the other thing was a whole process. So he had to write this lengthy article. And he, he joked with me afterwards. He was like, I just want to thank you. I was like, thank me? I'm like, I want to thank you. He's like, no, thank you for my outdoor kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> I hope he invited so you over for food dollars later in Oof. three months. We, we finally got the approval from the CCC. Wow. And, and that is just to start. Or, or I should say from the fire department, not the CCC. And that was, it was, it was what we, we deemed Freezer Wars 2021. And it, it went on for a very long time. And my investors were ready to, to string me up because it was just like, well, what do you mean you can't do this? So it's like, well, I, I, I don't know. Like they're telling me I can't even though I should be able to. And the best part was there's a company in East Wareham that was doing the very same thing with their <laughs> ethanol. And I, I raised this point to the fire department and they said, well, I understand that Mr. Pitts, but that's East Wareham. This is West Wareham. I said, you're absolutely right. The flashpoint's way different over there. <laughs> <laughs> did that, I'm sure that sass went over very well, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, it didn't, it didn't go very well. <laughs> but Just I will say today, the, the fire department is fantastic with us you know we got through that hurdle together they understood what we were trying to do they understand our processes and they've been they've been 
fantastic ever since. But it was a, a, a crazy obstacle early on. And then I have the town, the, the selectmen looking at me and be like, what the hell is taking you so long? I'm like, I don't know. Call off your dogs. Like, I don't, I don't know what's going on. Like, you guys are, you guys are putting the screws to me where you're not doing that in East Wareham. And they were like, oh, we have no jurisdiction. Well, that's East Wareham, though. Yeah, Physics yeah, is like, different yeah. over there. Yes. <laughs> so it was, it was a complete runaround, but, you know, not, not to say that they weren't doing their job because they were. And I hope that that sets a precedent moving forward for anyone that's opening a lab in Massachusetts because, I mean, we got put through the ringer. And this is all before the first plant was, was planted. Yeah, this was before licensure. Yeah. Final licensure. Yeah. Wow. That is a, I mean, we could go on for hours here. That is a ridiculous founder's journey through that you guys had to, to just, even just to begin to apply to start growing. And that was, you said that was in 2019. So we're talking what, two years of, of formation and funding and building failures and family failures and yes. health failures and, Brian, a, I got a, a lot I got of adversity. A, I, got a, I got a call from Jesse. Uh, <laughs> this was after we began. So we we raised our our first five and a half million bucks during the pot com crash. So the dot com crash was like the a seventy percent crash. Love it. But but if you if you take a look at at the 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 the, 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 the so if you take a look at, at stock prices, right? So. Dot com crash was like what seventy some odd percent. This was ninety some odd percent. Like, take a look at the, just take a look at the prices of the Canadian LPs and the MSO, like the the few pink sheet, whatever they are, Nasdaq bulletin board MSOs. Um, yeah, I mean, just they they got smushed, right? So like like we're raising equity that it was like it was it was it was like I was selling leprosy. Like, hey guys, I have leprosy. Do you want to buy this? Somehow. <laughs> We found a great investor group you, that <laughs> you found people that, that want to grab that want to grab falling knives. <sighs> Apparently, I want to fast forward a bit because you were ready to go. You got your CEO. The freezer wars have been resolved. You could start your grow. You could start your manufacturing. You can get into retail. You could start actually showing money that is coming in the door on this. What happened between the spring of 2019 and the spring of 2022 that elongated that for those three years? Well, I mean, we started build out and then COVID hit. And so we actually, COVID, we, and I'm not saying that COVID is good in any way. However, uh, to quote, what, who's that, Rahm Emanuel, whoever said it, like, don't let a good crisis go to waste or whatever, like, uh, and if I misattributed it, forgive me, but, um, but you know, it's like, okay, so there's COVID, Boston construction shuts down. Well, that means that we get our pick of subs in Wareham, which didn't shut down. So that was wonderful. Um, energy rebates for our build-out, for our lights, for retrofitting this building. So there was all sorts of wonderful stuff there. Um, but then also, you know, the problem with COVID, one of the big problems that, that we dealt with here was that that was the excuse for everything. So any, like, like before supply chain issues became the, the, the phrase that everybody's talking about, like, that just, it was, it was everything. It was just the excuse for, for everything. 
Um, you know, and then even just, you know, just inspections and all of it, like when you can't have a certain number of people in a room, when, you know, you, like all of that stuff, like the commission had rules that you couldn't have two registered agents in a car at the same time. So now each inspector has to take their own. I mean, it was just like, wow. remember this was early on. Yep. Right. And, and also remember Massachusetts, there was the, like, as we're raising money, there was the vape crisis. <laughs> okay. So obviously that's little investor jitters right there. Um, and Massachusetts was the only state that shut down adult use and made it non-essential. Like every other state went, cannabis is essential. Massachusetts said like adult use shut down, like can't even. And, and that's why you sort of see this weird growth in the Massachusetts industry where you had this incredible expansion of the number of retail stores because that was the lowest cost way of entering the market when capital dried up during the popcorn crash and COVID and all of that. And, you know, and then, and then after that happened, as most cannabis fundraising is done with debt, with an equity sweetener, right? Like convertibles or, or warrants or whatever, right? Or, um, you know, so, so when you have all of that and then you have the, the federal government printing 80% of all dollars ever printed in the last 24 months and equity markets and everything goes on fire. And then all of a sudden now you're trying to take, like nobody wants 12% debt. That's boring. Um, which now in hindsight, when you have eight and a half percent, like nominal inflation, maybe 12% debt is boring, but, but back then two years ago, maybe not. So yeah. Uh, a yeah. lot. Did, did that time, did, did you keep the things running just because you had, you know, a bit of a wholesale marketplace that you guys could sell out to, to other just dispensaries to, to, to like produce some revenue on that? Yeah, so when we started, our, our manufacturing and our cultivation facility launched in July. So it, it took us a lot longer to get the retail up and running. But we've been in the marketplace since July and, you know, in, in over 30 stores in Massachusetts. So we had a great opportunity by launching the lab first and getting cultivation to ramp up while we were doing that before we actually launched retail. And that gave us a great opportunity to get known in the space and to get our name out in the space and to build, uh, you know, partnerships out in the space as far as, as, as toll processing goes and stuff like that. So when it came time to launch the retail, it was a lot easier because we already had these, these uh, partnerships built up. So that was very, very instrumental for us as far as launching retail. And it, it gave us cash flow, which was very, very needed early on where, you know, our investors looking at us like, all right, guys, you know, we just, we keep giving you money and we're not seeing any revenue. <laughs> you, you give me, so you, we give you money, you give me excuses. So yes. <laughs> like, yes. we got to change this narrative here, please. So um, the, the, the manufacturing really gave us a launching spot for, to, to launch our brand and mm -hmm. to, to, to get our feet under us as far as, as far as a company. That. I mean, you got to keep pivoting. That is that is the nature of the stories that I've you guys have shared with me today, and the nature of well, any business, but like 
Life keeps throwing obstacles at you. I won't even ask what the next obstacle that is going to throw at you guys because I don't want you to bring that energy into here because I think the universe will just provide it anyway without any foreshadowing. <laughs> um, you know, with all the things that are going on, I, I do want to wrap this up uh, and conclude this amazing founder's journey. But like with all the things that are going on, with all the, the stress and the anxiety and the constant changing and the freezer wars and funding and Apple stock and Bitcoin. Like, how do you guys keep your sanity and, and your focus? Like, it's an individual question for both of you, but like, what is your little happy space? How do you get away from all of this and just kind of come back to that, you know, to, to, to come back to your core? Jesse, if you so, want to start. S- sanity, I didn't know that was a requirement. <laughs> <laughs> But no, in, in all, all truthfulness, um, you know, it's, it's, it's family and friends and, and it's, it's those moments where you're, you're kind of shaken and you're, you're, you're shook and they just kind of bring you back down to reality and ground you. And, and that, that for me is very important. And to know that there are a lot of people out there that support us and it's not just business people. These are, these are people that are in both of our lives and it's, it, that that's very real for me. And it, you know, at, at the end of the day, we all go home. And if you don't have that support there, what do you really have? That's fair. Wow. Yeah. Yep. Carl. Yeah. I mean, for me, that's Sola, you know, I mean, she, she sold her New York city apartment and left her Michelin star job to come with her drug dealer boyfriend to a town of 22,000. So yeah, I mean, when I go home, that's her and and it's Jesse, you know, like, when he comes into my office this morning and is saying the things and yet then yelling at me as he's making a coffee, yelling at me about the things that I was just thinking, it's like, okay, one, I'm not crazy. <laughs> um, you know, it's like, okay, this, this makes, yeah, I, I get this. So, um, you know, that end, this town is awesome, Brian. Like, I, it's funny, you know, I, I joke with my friends who still live in New York and it's like, Jesse and I walk, we walk into town hall and it's, Hey, it's the pot guys. You know, we walk into the local, you know, the, just what the, you know, the whatever restaurant and it's, Hey boys, how's business? It's like, that's so nice. Like, it's so nice. Uh, it's also weird because I can't have a bad day driving and you know, in a town this small, um, <laughs> you know, they know who you are. <laughs> I, yeah, I gotta be, I gotta be friendly and drive slow and wave. Um, but it's, it's cool. It's really, this, this town is, is, has really been really welcoming to us. And it's, it's awesome. I hope somebody from Amazon Prime is listening. Cause this sounds like a really great, uh, this sounds like a really great documentary or a little mini series coming to, to Amazon Prime this fall. So, um, are there any founders or business people or anybody else that really inspire you and you kind of model some, some things afterwards. Um, and, and Carl, if you want to go first on this one, since you were. Uh, yeah, I gotta That's... say, my, I gotta say Scott Jennings, uh, from pantry. Mm. So met him through a, a buddy of mine from, from New York. Um, and he owns a, a chef inspired edible brand out of California um, and he just gets it. And it's funny. We, we, we hop on the phone. It's probably about once a year. Um, but every time we hop on the phone, it's like, oh, 
fuck, I didn't think of that. Or shoot, I didn't think of that. Uh, and and yeah, it just entirely gets it and is doing things for the right reason. And yeah, just it just yeah. Every day I, I, we spoke with him last week, and it was just a really centering call. And that's, so that's cool to have like a founder that you can have that you admire, but also can kind of you know have you know shop talk and conversations with as well. Um, Jesse, how about you? So I've actually never spoken to this gentleman, at least to my knowledge. Um, but Mike Dundas from Sierra Naturals, um, you know, his story just resonates with me and I've listened to him speak several times and, you know, hearing him say that he, he, he wrote the business plan while sleeping on his mother's couch just hit me home. And, you know, it, it, to be a mass company that started here and that has exited and has been successful, but yet still is involved in that company. That, that to me is, 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 you know, that, that's a pinnacle and, um, much respect to Mike Dundas. Okay. I like the shout outs guys. Um, so I have been to the dispensary. I think it's a wonderful place. They have a, whoever's idea was this, uh, they have, it was a, mine. they have, mine. A, they have, a, they have, a, they have, a, <laughs> It's like car talk here, guys. I love it. Um, <laughs> they have a window right to the grow room from the dispensary, and there's a sticker on the floor that says no selfies. Um, uh, uh, so make sure you ignore that like I did. Um, <laughs> or at least don't get anybody else in the photo. Um, how can people connect with you? And how can people come and visit? How can people support um, if, if they love this story today? Sure. So we're actually we we got we got thrown in Instagram jail, and not even for the reason that we should get thrown in Instagram jail. Um, so, so <laughs> this is a great story. I'm, <laughs> I'm I'm a control freak, and I gave up a tiny little bit of control, and I gave up to 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 one of our, our awesome employees, our coworkers, David. I gave him our Facebook page. And what he decided to do was take our Facebook page. I don't know what this, all, how this is all done, but he, I guess the age was the age of the person who set up the page. He, but he wanted to change the age of the page to the age of our business, but instead they changed it <laughs> to three years old. And apparently Facebook has an issue with a three-year-old selling cannabis. And so <laughs> who would have thought it shut down, it shut down Facebook, but also we had our Instagram page, which, I was running uh, and, and <laughs> that, got, that got pulled down too. And so we're, we're now, we're in a process of talking to some human over at Meta, I guess, and we're going to get back up. But so trade roots and T-R-A-D-E-R-O-O-T-S-M-A was, is the page that's in jail. Uh, but we have a backup page that we're also running, which is trade roots, same T-R-A-D-E-R-O-O-T-S underscore buzz b-u-z-z and and our website's trade roots.buzz so um who knows i hope we get out of trade roots we get out of uh instagram jail because we have some really cool older pictures on there that are fun that um, is actually that's one thing i did <laughs> want to mention is the you have some amazing photographers like that are taking photos of what you're doing it is like it, it, it should be in like Nat Geo. It should have its own page. There are just some phenomenal pictures of the plant and your extracts and everything else that you just couldn't even know existed. So I, I will say, if you want to see some of them, um, Nick Cash, which is Instagram Zoom Gardens, um, 
and Patrick Rogers, uh, and his his Instagram is Giggle Grassachusetts. Um, I will I'll let you guys spell that out. Um, but yeah, there it's 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 so much like there are so many talented people that that are that are being drawn into this industry that are it's wild. This is if 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 there's one takeaway from this entire thing, uh, if you're in an industry that sucks and is unfulfilling, um, like come to this industry because there's like the number of shitty people that we've met, Jesse, like what, maybe one hand, maybe, maybe like, yeah. People, like yep. the fact that I could call a close competitor and be like, Hey, I have this problem. And he or she will be like, Oh, here, here's how to solve it. And here I'll help you and all of this stuff. Like that's wild. It's, it's especially coming from an industry where margins you know, we're shrinking, 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 and everybody's talking their own book and, and all that stuff, right? So, like, it's, uh, like, come to the cannabis industry. It's cool. Well, gentlemen, thank you for sharing both your Incredibles and, and joint together's Founders Journey. This was my first dual interview, and I think it was probably the best interview I've ever had. So you guys have a great story, and I think you're going to inspire a lot of uh, current and future founders with what you guys shared today. So thanks for doing what you do. Thanks for fulfilling the mission that you do, and thanks for sharing it with our audience. Likewise, man. This has been great. Thanks, Brad. Hey there. One quick thing before we go. If you've listened this far, you've likely got some value from the show. These episodes take a lot to produce. All I'm asking for is some feedback. I hear this all the time, and honestly, usually ignore it too, but reviews have a huge ROI for us podcasters, especially the smaller ones. Taking less than a minute to write a review and sharing with your friends, colleagues, and followers on social media would mean the world to us. Thank you. Lit Up Founders is a Lit Up Media production. I'm your host, Brian Weber. This episode was edited by Anthony Margola and Brian Weber, mixed and mastered by Anthony Margola. Theme music courtesy of Justin Cruz of Cruise Control Music. You can connect with us on our website, litupfounders.com, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at litupfounders, and LinkedIn at litupmedia. Our email is feedback at litupmedia.com. Thanks for sharing the journey.